Section 53 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary in Arkansas. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Appendix 1 The Tempest. Part 2. Section 53. On its deeper side, we would say that the sentence is in flat contradiction to the mind of Shakespeare. To him, human life is the one great objective reality. We are not now saying that he is right or wrong in this, but it is this objective pressure of human life upon him that has produced the immortal dramas. Whether wholesome or vile, it is real wholesomeness and real vileness. Whether life is spent in earnest, or it is merely that of men and women playing parts his world is peopled by real men not dreamy stuff quality of the tempest whether then we take the cosmic philosophy of the whole passage or the touch of human philosophy with which it closes we maintain that whether written by shakespeare or not it is not shakespearean if we are disposed to deny to the play the possession of first-class shakespearean work it would nevertheless be folly to discredit the good work, or what might be called the second class that it certainly does contain. The times were prolific of second-rate work, judged by the standard of Shakespeare. Work which, but for this high standard, might have ranked as first class. There seems indeed to be in the play indications of a real collaboration between two men, a playwright proper and a poet. The passage quoted, and others, especially the lyrical verse, seem to be from a different hand from the one that wrote the play as a whole, but it does not look like the unfinished work of one writer being finished by another. Our present business, however, is to see whether or not it is Shakespearean. Dumb Shows and Noise Continuing this inquiry, we shall first recall certain criticisms in Hamlet upon a class of play then coming into vogue. There is, sir, an airy of children, little ayasses, that cry out on the top of the question, and that are most tyrannically clapped for it. The groundlings, for the most part, are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. With these remarks in mind, let the reader turn over the page of the great Shakespearean dramas, noticing the stage directions. For the most part, these are little more than the simple expressions enter, exit, aside, sleeps, rises and advances, trumpets, noise within, and such like. When, as in the case of the dumb show episode in the by-play in Hamlet, directions are necessary these are limited to mere outline every particular action indicated being an essential part of the drama and moreover quite explicable now with hamlet's special anima adversion on inexplicable dumb shows and noise in mind turn to the stage direction in the tempest a tempestuous noise of thunder and lightning heard a confused noise within thunder 
at intervals. Enter Prospero, above, invisible. Enter several strange shapes, bringing in a banquet. They dance about it with gentle actions and salutations, and inviting the king, etc., to eat, they depart. Again, thunder and lightning. Enter Ariel, like a harpy, claps his wings upon the table, and with a quaint device the banquet vanishes. Again, he vanishes in thunder, then to soft music, enter the shapes again and dance, with mocks and mouths, and carry out the table. Further on, enter certain reapers, properly habited. They join with the nymphs in a graceful dance. Towards the end whereof, Prospero starts suddenly and speaks. After which, to a strange hollow and confused noise, they heavily vanish. On Shakespearean details. And there is still more of this kind of thing. Yet it is supposed that the very man who pinned this had, six or seven years previously, taken up arms against such pantomimic products, and entered into his great masterpiece a caveat against this development of inexplicable dumb shows and noise. In the first folio only six out of all Shakespeare's detailed plays are prefaced with lists of dramatis personae. Of these, The Tempest is one, and Timon of Athens, an admittedly collaborated work, is another. In the latter work it is done most ostentatiously. As we shall find the singularities of the former play accumulate, the exceptional fact just narrated should be kept in mind. Turning to the list in The Tempest, we find that one character is described as drunken, another as honest, and a third as savage. Although in another of these lists, The Two Gentlemen, Thurio is spoken of as foolish. In none of them is there so much of it as in the play we are considering. The whole thing strikes one as alien to the spirit of Shakespeare, whose method is naturally to reveal the character of his personae in the working of the plays. It is hardly probable that Shakespeare had a hand in any of the list. They are editorial work and the character they assume in this instance helps to emphasize the facts, which others have pointed out, that exceptional care was bestowed upon the editing of The Tempest. The editor or editors have evidently some special interest in this particular drama. Without Wit Coming now to the question of general workmanship, we may take any other of the great Shakespearean comedies, and examine the dialogue throughout, particularly that between young people of the opposite sexes. What strikes us most is the constant clash of wit and the subtle teasing that takes place whenever young men and women meet, together with the playful cross-purposes in which Shakespeare's lovers invariably indulge. There is nothing like this in The Tempest. In its place we get the milk-and-water sentimentality of Miranda and Ferdinand, unillumined by a single flash of intellect. Yet Miranda was no child ignorant of life, a fact most evident from her previous conversation with her father. Possibly the dramatist, in composing this love scene, in which he wished to represent Miranda in a particular light, 
had overlooked what he had already written in the previous scene. Be that as it may, the character of the intercourse between these two lovers is worth considering. They meet for the first time and spend about five minutes together. In that short space of time they have fallen deeply in love, confessed their sentiments, and arranged their first tryst, half an hour hence. All this, of course, is due to Prospero's magic. How interminable that half-hour must have seemed to the young people! And so, when it comes to an end, they meet again, in the presence of Miranda's father, and listen to a lecture from him. But when he leaves them, and they are at last alone together, for the first time as a betrothed couple, in the transports of their new-born love, they pour out their mutual affection in a rapturous game of chess. Is it possible to conceive of Shakespeare representing thus any of the outstanding couples of his play, like Romeo and Juliet, Orlando and Rosalind, Hermia and Lysander, Valentine and Sylvia, Baron and Rosaline, Portia and Bassinio, or Beatrice and Benedict? In all these cases the interest centers in the play of dialogue, mind meeting mind, and not upon the play of limelight upon a pretty stage scene. Course Fun not only in the kind of intercourse we have just been discussing, but throughout the play, the great Shakespearean trait that we most miss is genuine wit, in the proper sense of intellectual refinement and subtlety. The drama depends for its interest very largely upon the spectacular, and is probably for this reason selected in modern times for displaying the skill more of the stage mechanics than of the actors. It has indeed been acknowledged by one authority that, there is no wit in the tempest. Nevertheless, its author was solicitous regarding the lighter side of the play, and so when fun and some relief from stage display is sought, the play makes its appeal to the grotesque coarse and ludicrous, drawing almost the whole of its laughter it contains from drunken buffoonery. Without its elaborate stage effects, the performance would probably fall very flat, and this fact supports the theory that it is not a true Elizabethan work but belongs to the period to which it has been assigned, although such plays were evidently coming into vogue in the later Elizabethan period. On the other hand, to think of it as coming from the great Elizabethan dramatist, when to his vast powers had been added the mellowing influence of a still larger experience, increases the mysteriousness to which the work is involved. The fact is that this play has always been looked at with the other dramas as an imposing background. Viewed as supplementary to a monumental literature, the greatness that is in the other writings has been carried forward and added to its account. Separated from the other works, however, it is seen to contain much thinner intellectual stuff than has been supposed. The Tempest Problem The effect of these considerations is to raise the Tempest question not merely of whether the Tempest contains a large admixture of other men's works, but the bolder and more momentous question of whether it is, in any sense, a work of Shakespeare's. This is not a question of whether it is a good or a poor production, or whether certain genuine Shakespearean plays are not in some respects inferior to this one. The question is this. Judging from a comparison of the characteristics of this play with the outstanding features of Shakespeare's work, 
what are the probabilities that it did not come from the same pen as the others a play apart we have already pointed out that its position a play amongst the other dramas from the point of view of date marks it at once as a work quite by itself in other respects too we shall find that this is so it is the only play staged with a background of the sea and seafaring life the nearest approach to it curiously enough being pericles and it is the only one that has the practice of magic as a dominant element the supernatural agents in a midsummer night's dream not being under human control and direction this trinity of singularities constitutes a sufficient impeachment to begin with we must however add to this what is perhaps the strongest general argument against it that it is the only play attributed to shakespeare which makes any attempt at conforming to the greek unities that shakespeare should do this at any time seems highly improbable it is contrary to the free spirit of his genius and it is an illustration of that tongue-tying of art by authority which he explicitly repudiates to think of him submitting to such unwholesome restriction at the extreme end of his career would require some extraordinary explanation feudalism take the work now in its bearing upon some of those points according to which we sought to characterize shakespeare at the beginning of our investigations although it contains a king and a duke no one can feel in reading that he is in touch with the social structure of a medieval feudalism prospero the duke of milan represents in no way a ducal dignity or the functions of a dukedom he is first and last a magician and it would have mattered little to his part in the play if he had been originally a patriarchal deacon king alonzo can hardly be regarded as a personage belonging to the play in certain important scenes he is only required to stand and ejaculate such expressions as prithee peace or prithee be still he is the most wooden and least royal of all shakespeare's kings a part to be relegated to a subordinate member of the company of actors prospero's brother antonio the usurping duke is a very ordinary stage villain whom the writer of the drama seems almost to have forgotten after the second act with a most curious result for although the anticlimax of the play consists of his undoing his only part in the final act involving disaster to his fortunes is to make a single remark about fish this is neither feudalism nor shakespeare catholicism so much for the social side of medievalism when we turn to its religious aspect catholicism a more curious situation is presented whatever shakespeare's personal opinions may have been in respect to religion there exists no doubt as his being thoroughly conversant with the roman catholic standpoint and quite familiar with its terminology and all this he introduces frequently and appropriately into his dramas now the tempest is a work dealing with italian noblemen of milan and naples that is to say belonging to a roman catholic society yet from the first word of the play to the last we cannot find a single term employed suggestive of a distinctively catholic conception at the same time innumerable occasions are presented when such touches of local coloring could have been inserted and when any writer having the material at command would unconsciously have tended to introduce it 
we need only cite the call to prayers the betrothal of ferdinand and miranda and the serious religious cast given to some of prospero's intercourse with his daughter whether therefore we approach it on its social or its religious side we may say that the medievalism which shakespeare has by embodying in his dramas done so much to preserve in living colors is almost if not wholly absent from this particular play we are entitled to say that the man who wrote it had neither shakespeare's intimacy with catholicism nor his vitalized conception of what was best in feudalism woman significant results are again obtained when we apply to the tempest the test of the dramatist's treatment of women we shall put aside that definite and peculiar attitude we deduced from the sonnets which does not appear in the best shakespearean comedies and confine our attention to the dramas here we find the most frequent and varied references to the characters dispositions moods motives and conduct of women that he had observed women accurately might be questioned but that he had observed them closely and had a very great deal to say on the subject no one will deny consequently the word woman is one most frequently in use in his plays now in the tempest the word woman never occurs once in connection with such matters as those to which we have just alluded it will perhaps be a matter of surprise to many that the word only occurs twice in the whole play and these are most formal and void of character miranda remarks that she no woman's face remembers and caliban remarks i never saw a woman but sycorax my dam and she the three occasions on which the plural is used are equally colorless this is indeed a very poor show for a work that is supposed to have come from the hand of such an exponent of human nature as shakespeare End of section fifty three